Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Joran Bolin. And Joran, you, you read the script very well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well I have another guest. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Carlito Marx with sunglasses yeah. on. Um, but, you know, he's, he's not around at the moment. He's no. just a figment on a T-shirt. Yeah, so he, wouldn't have, and... he wouldn't have needed sunglasses in Stockholm today because it's snowing. <laughs> I don't know if you saw this in The Guardian today, Juran, but there was an article saying that in order to be buried next to the great man in Highgate Cemetery in London, you have to pay several thousand pounds more okay, than okay. to be buried anywhere else in Britain. <laughs> I, I but it's a... It's a... It's an interesting company you end up with. You have Eric Hobsbawm and others. Yeah. <laughs> neighbors. Yeah. And actually, you know, you can get life membership to have mm. access at any time you want to Marx's tomb. Mm. Uh, in addition, of course, to the fact that there are people who deface it because of what are seen, understandably, as terrible crimes committed mm. in his name, even if he didn't commit any of them personally. Anyway... That's a long-winded way of asking a question I really wanted to ask you, my old friend, which is tell me what's on your mind at the moment, what you're thinking about, what's dynamizing you, concerning you, preoccupying you. Oh, uh, yeah, well, uh, to be very sort of uh, manifest, I've been, my mind has been on a recently finished project on, on information management and propaganda in Ukraine because I, I'm preparing for for a seminar presentation tomorrow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's very very concrete. That's that's on my mind. So so I I'm summarizing the the uh the result that we published my co-author Per Stolberg and me um uh in uh, just before before the summer last year. So so that's on my mind and uh yes to to fit in the what I'm going to say in a 30-minute slot tomorrow. <laughs> and and what is the event? Well, the event is, is it's an online seminar uh, for uh, PhD students and staff at the University of Hilversum in, in Germany. So so I will be doing it via Zoom, as nice. we do some days. <laughs> Indeed. And I'm wondering, perhaps I could ask you, assuming that, that they don't form a large part of our audience, for this, yes. if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about that, I, I'm asking you because I, I noted a couple of hours ago a series of headlines suggesting the possible use of tactical nuclear weaponry. Oh uh, yeah, Ukraine yeah. Uh, and the rising tide of anxiety evident mm. in media coverage. So, if you could take us back to what you found out in your collaborative research and give us an adumbration, a brief idea of what you're going to share with them tomorrow. That'd be great. I mean, the questions of tactical nuclear weapons drop uh, pops up now and again, uh, uh, of course, uh, since the, since Russia made its full-scale invasion, uh, well, almost two years ago, but, but, uh, but, but, but the research that, uh, that Per and I did, was really uh, finished by by the full scale invasion. I mean, there was already a, a 
a sort of a low intense war since 2014 after the annexation of Crimea. Mm. And Per and I started our research even before that. So we started doing field work in Ukraine in 2013 with the aim of, of studying nation branding. We were doing interviews with PR people and uh, uh, politi politicians and political administrations because these are the people that want to improve of the image of the country or Ukraine in this case. So, so we did that in the spring of 2013 and um, because Ukraine had had launched a couple of, of uh, branding campaigns because they thought of themselves as invisible in the eyes of the rest of Europe. Um, um, there is a funny anecdote of one, one of our main informants at the PR bureau in Kiev. Uh, he said that it was so, it was so frustrating being a Ukrainian. <laughs> uh, when you looked at the television, when you looked at international channels like CNN and BBC World and oh. Euronews, I mean, when you came to the weather forecasts, there was no <laughs> weather in Ukraine. <laughs> so they, <laughs> so they prompted the Euronews uh, uh, repeatedly and said, couldn't you at least show how the temperatures in Kiev? <laughs> And eventually they succeeded, <laughs> so they were very happy. But, but of course, when the Euromaidan revolution happened later in 2013 or at the turn of the year to 2014, uh, uh, Ukraine quite quickly became on the minds of, of Europeans and, and uh, people around the world uh, because of the dramatics, the overthrowing or the, the ousting of, of uh, President Yanukovych and and I mean, the quite violent uh, clamp down on the, the initially the protesters, the students and the protesters against the regime was was very peaceful. But but uh, the response from the authorities was very harsh. So the special police forces clamped down and eventually people starting to get killed. So so and that's, of course, a major like all other upheavals in the the, the Arab Spring and, and uh, similar revolutions or upheavals, that becomes headlines and, and uh, sort of top of the news agendas. And Per and I thought that, well, we first of all, we thought, wow, we can't, our project, well, our project just flew out the window. So, but then we realized that the people that we had started to do interviews with in uh, political administration uh, and uh, journalists and uh, PR people, they were also very active in this uh, uh, in this Euromaidan revolution. So we kept contact with them uh, online, uh, and then we uh, after the the revolution was over and Yanukovych fled to Russia, and there was a new election, and Petro Poroshenko was elected president. We started to go back and then continue our interviews with, well, much the same people or the same similar people, but but our project sort of focused more on on how the new government and how Ukraine was communicating to the outside world. Uh, also, during the pressure of of the annexation of Crimea and, and the sort of war in the eastern parts of Ukraine and then the downing of the Malaysian aircraft that happened in the summer of 2014. 
So that was a lot of, of attention, a lot of eyes uh, concentrated on Ukraine there. And, uh, and then you had also the, all the Russian propaganda machinery uh, that they had to um, sort of counter in a sense. So that it popped up a lot of interesting new communications initiatives, uh, among other things, these news debunking organizations like Stop Fake that tried to, to sort of debunk all the, the false claims that were made by Russian media uh, on them. So, so the project itself took another a different turn, a more interesting turn, I would say, uh, uh, when, we, when we followed this over the years. So we, Per and I went repeatedly to Kyiv and uh, did interviews to follow up there. So, so we, the last time we were in Kyiv was in late 2019. And then we started to write our book and then the full-scale invasion happened. And well, well, then the pandemic happened, so we couldn't go, to, go there. We couldn't go anywhere. Uh, so, yeah, so basically that was it. And um, yeah, in a, in a short, uh, to, to put it shortly. I recently recorded a, a <clears throat> pardon me, I recently recorded a podcast that was meant to be uh, all about ecological issues and also national cinema issues. And this podcast was with, with Pietari Kappa, a Finnish scholar. So inevitably I thought I had to ask him about joining NATO yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and for a lot of listeners explaining, and he did this very briefly and brilliantly, the complex history of the Finns and, and the Soviets and also Russia. So I have to ask you about uh, Sweden yeah. joining NATO because other Swedish friends of mine have told me that the march towards NATO was basically unquestioned by the bourgeois media. Uh, that this was deemed essential and there were no dissenting voices. Uh, is that right? And has that continued to be the case? Yeah, I mean, the the um, the, uh, the public opinion uh, to, towards NATO, the, the, I mean, there has been um, traditionally a, a scepticism towards NATO. Yeah. So, yeah. so the, the majority opinion has been not to, to keep Sweden's neutrality, which... You can debate to what extent it has been neutral, but but the official policies were were that were uh, uh, arguing that Sweden should be neutral. Yeah. But that changed very quickly, and also the opinion changed. Not, not only the bourgeois media, but but basically everybody uh, jumped on this wagon. So the opinion swung in 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 favor of of joining NATO and also together with Finland. Uh, now, the Swedish government didn't play their cards very well <laughs> because they managed to upset uh, uh, Erdogan in, in Turkey and um, have, have different reasons. And of course, we could debate that. Uh, um, it's 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 a long story with back and forth things. But, but, but the in, uh, interesting... I mean, this is, of course, a major change in, in European security policy. Uh, and uh, the expansion of NATO to Finland and eventually Sweden, I think it's it's just a question of time, I, yeah. I see. Yeah. 
and the, the the Turkish sort of reluctance to to accept Swedish also has much to do with Turkish internal policies. So, uh, and you also have some sort of Hungary is also uh, uh, not in favor of Sweden joining NATO, but that that's also some sort of internal domestic policies uh, questions. But but it it really has changed the, the discourse around security around, around the Baltic Sea. I mean, historically, uh, Sweden and Russia had have, you could say, competed for for the dominance in the north northeastern parts of Europe since several hundred years. So, so Sweden uh, uh, in the sixteen hundreds, when Sweden expanded uh, and and they, they had their imperialist ambitions. <laughs> With with the old um, imperialist uh, oriented kings uh, in the 1600s, uh, then uh, at the Battle of Poltava in present day uh, Ukraine um, that belongs to the Russian Tsar, then uh, the, in 1709 when Sweden lost in Poltava, that was that was a, a major change in the in the in the European. Uh, our sphere, uh, you could say. So that was the rise of, of well, that was the, the crushing of the imperialist Swedish dreams and the rise mm. of the Russian imperialist uh, ideas. So, and, and, and so, so in that sense, the, 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 the relation between Sweden and Russia has always been tense. And, and this is really revived with the full-scale invasion because you we were there is an immediately perception of a, a russian threat <laughs> yeah and just going back to ukraine if we could one of the issues that seems to be playing out in some media coverage and i'd love to know your view on this is a dynamic in which on the one side we see ukraine as a great seat of democracy fighting the totalitarian Russian state. And then on the other hand, we get the Putin-style discourse, which is these are a bunch of Nazis. Mm. And uh, just look at the history of Ukraine during the Second World War or the patriotic war against fascism, as the Russians like to call it and the Soviets called it. And, of course, the current president of Ukraine is Jewish and is not a Nazi, but there are supposedly these strong elements of hypernationalism floating around Ukraine. And, and those aspects come out in some media coverage, that sort of tension, it seems to me. Has that been your perception, that sort of duel in the imagery, talking about branding, as it were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, uh, just as many other European countries, you have the far right uh, in uh in Ukraine as well, <laughs> so so that's no denying that. And uh, similar to the the sort of um, uh, the so-called Nordic resistance movement, which is the Swedish Nazi <laughs> on the really far right Nazi flank, yeah. uh, they are not that many in uh, when you count them, but they get uh, disproportionate proportionate attention from news media because when they appear there's always connection with violence with protest clashes the beating of immigrants etc so and that was the case already during the Euromaidan revolution because 
people protesting the Yanukovych re regime uh, were of, of, of a quite broad spectrum of political positions, including uh, the far right. Uh, they weren't that many, but they got also uh, similar to the, the the Nordic resistance movement in Sweden, the the, the right sector, as they were called in uh, the, at the Euromaidan, got got quite a lot of attention. Uh, and also, it was very thankful for the Russian propaganda machinery to pick up on those, of course. And this is what makes these propaganda things tricky, because when Russia says that. Well, you actually have Nazis in in Ukraine. Well, they have. <laughs> they are not that many, but they do exist, and they make a lot of noise. <laughs> uh, so, um, just as they do in in Sweden and and in in Germany. I mean, the Alternative for Deutschland and the, mm. and the other right groups. Uh, it it's partly also to do with the, the news logic that. Uh, uh, violence and clashes between conflicts uh, get on top of the agenda of the news uh, circles. Uh, so uh, the more democratic sort of uh, small niche groups don't get that much attention because they sort of strive on with their yes. quite democratic <laughs> processes and, and, and that doesn't make the news, so to speak. So I think, I think that's... Um, I think Ukraine is no exception in that case. I mean, uh, Ukraine is 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 uh, of course different from Sweden and from many other European countries in many respects. Not least because of the level of corruption that it has had, and that they are now fighting in order to to qualify for for being uh, members of the European Union. But but there's no denying that there has been a lot of uh, corruption. You have the oligarch structure, as you have in many of the uh, post-Soviet yeah. areas, uh, which poses problems also. So, so, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah. So that's about it. About. No, I, I appreciate that explanation because it's hard for me to judge these things, and you're an expert going back a long time. Other topics you've been looking at recently and into the future include a whole variety of things, one of which is the current site of moral panics and cybertarian utopias, artificial intelligence. On the one hand, it will ruin our lives. Our children and grandchildren will never get jobs. Uh, on the other hand, it's a panacea that will save everything. My cancer yeah. surgeon told me that next time I have surgery... It won't be a robot that does what he tells it. It'll all be done by artificial intelligence. What's yeah. your take on this? You know, it's really an oscillation that you as a yeah, historian are very familiar with going back well over a century and a half, right, with new yeah, yeah, yeah. communication. It's, uh, I mean, it's the, 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 the sort of mechanisms of moral panics and the sort of utopias and dystopias that, uh, that uh, appear alongside every new sort of media <laughs> invention is is very recognizable when it comes to AI. Uh, you have these sort of uh, really enthusiastic uh, uh, people saying this is going to solve everything, <laughs> uh, as you as you say. And, and then you have the pessimists saying, oh, we have three years and then the world will go <laughs> and the machines will kill us <laughs> off. <laughs> Uh, of course, it, this never it never happens. <laughs> uh, 
those uh, neither the utopias nor the dystopias ever happens but 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 of course they um it's uh, these dystopias and utopias also it, it sensitizes us to to their that to the discussion i mean we have new new features and and uh, just as all new major media technologies or technologies whatsoever that are introduced they will have consequences for how society is organized and for yeah. the, the the labor sector what types of jobs will disappear and which new jobs will will uh, appear because that's also the the case always it it, it it produces new types of jobs that we didn't imagine just 10 years ago uh, and that's i mean as teachers when 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 you do do uh, uh, as we do uh, at Southern University, which uh, in media and communication studies, we tend to do every fifth year an alumni study, and then we ask students what what they work, <laughs> what's your title, <laughs> and you constantly see new titles appearing. <laughs> uh, so I remember at that time when when I first saw the the, the title search engine optimizer. <laughs> some 15 20 years ago that was that was something uh, uh, i didn't know that i i educated people to become search engine optimizers but apparently we did <laughs> <laughs> so and who knows what types of titles will come up in 5 years again now with with ai but it's also i i think it's there are there are also fascinating aspects of, of ai and and machine learning and large language models i mean chat gpt is of course on everybody's thoughts now especially within universities and uh, there's also this type of panic so we can't the student we can't sort of educate students anymore they will use chat gtp but i mean in a sense, uh, it this is not really a new thing. I, I was very perplexed about the debates around ChatGPT because if students want to cheat, they have always they have since long had uh, Google Translate and other means that they have been able to use. So, so in that sense, ChatGPT doesn't introduce any new features. It's perhaps more sophisticated, but. but but in, but but the principle of how it works is is not that different from previous uh, artificial intelligence. But I think also that large language models and and sort of human machine communication it poses some interesting new questions for us as as media and communication scholars and 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 uh, cultural studies scholars. I mean the way in which we have to rethink our concepts of communication. All in all, I would say. I mean, that's when we communicate with machines. We are obviously, it's we we can't reach uh, intersubjective understanding, but but it is some kind of communication, right? And we we uh, we tend to um, to relate to machines in ways that are modeled on human to human communication. I mean, usually we treat machines with respect, for example. So. So we can say thank you. We don't need to because the machine will will, will work uh, as good or as bad as uh, irrespective of what we do it. But it also has to do with some ethical things of how we want to think about ourselves as communicators more than this with with machines. And I think that's a fascinating new area that opens for 
for uh, media communication and cultural studies that that uh, that we can see. I've been involved in a special issue of of uh, sort of bringing mediatization research, which is most often focused on 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 more traditional media. Uh, and human-machine communication researchers. Uh, and there are interesting things happening when you bring these two things together. <laughs> what, say. what happens? Have you got an example for us? Well, what happens is that we have to sort of uh, try to find um, uh, conceptual clarity uh, when it comes to questions structure as communication. What 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 do we mean when we speak of communication? When we speak about meaning making, for example, when we speak about how we produce identities and etc. in in communication, uh, because there are new features introduced with with machines when we communicate with them. There are interesting work made by by media studies scholars um, on children and and how they. Uh, how children communicate with uh, Alexa and uh, and other sort of robots, uh, and how how they treat them, and how how that also differs a bit uh, from how adults um, relate to to media. So I think it's going to produce some new generational effects, <laughs> uh, where where younger people will will sort of have a more natural relationship uh, in talking to machines. Compared to us, <laughs> who have well, this our is like the <laughs> from forty years ago, the idea that only a seven-year-old could set the timer on a video cassette recorder. No yeah, one, yeah. no <laughs> one over the age of ten could operate the clock. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> seven-year-olds could, and it seems to me that there is something there that's been around for a very long time, and and is yeah. different from a century ago when we remember in the early history of radio. Part of the conceit of the radio, when it was quite an achievement to get it to work, was that one member of the heterosexual family held these secrets, and that was the father. And mm. he was often the only listener with his headphones on. Yeah, and yeah. That has really changed for all sorts of reasons. So one of the debates that's going on at the moment, and we're seeing a lot of this in the European Union, but elsewhere too, is that uh, suddenly we have these bastards who run major Hollywood studios and media conglomerates saying, we want regulation. We believe in regulation. And not only them, but also the established so-called new media giants, I guess middle-aged media giants, we would call them now, social media entities saying, we want regulation, we want regulation. And this is because both groups now have one joint interest, having been enemies for a decade or two, which is they want to control the intellectual property that they regard as theirs. And in the case of the traditional media magnates, the studios, uh, Associated Press, Reuters, Agence France Press, etc., we have all this content that we don't want everybody to be able to gain access to because it's our livelihood. Mm. And in the case of Google and Amazon and so on, Apple... Uh, we've got this technological infrastructure that we're developing. We don't anybody, want anybody else to be able to capture it. Hmm. So suddenly you have the biggest multinational corporations in the world wanting to be regulated, yeah. loving the fact 
that the European Union wants to do this, provided, of course, it's done in the right way. Yeah, yeah. We're even seeing some bipartisanship in D.C., right, mm. where different fractions of capital represented by the Republican Party and the Democratic Party both want some regulation. So I'm. this is really interesting to me because, you know, as, as you know, if we go back 20 years, there were no lobbyists for things like Facebook and its kind. Uh, and now they outnumber by far the tobacco lobby, the gun lobby, anything mm. you care to name. So yeah. there's something going on there about capital needing the state more than it ever thought it did. Now, this yeah. is my take on things. I'd love to know what you think. Yeah. I mean, the corporations, on the one hand, they're getting bigger. I read this morning, uh, it was on some social media, so an, an article um, uh, that was comparing. So if you comp- if if uh, the large platform companies were states, they would be among the sort of top 100 economies in the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they are dwarfing some uh, smaller countries uh, uh, in terms of, of revenues and turnover. Uh, but, but uh, I mean, we had this discussion in the 1990s about the withering of the nation state. But I think that that discussion is over now because, because of these things that large companies uh, and in the capitalist economy, we uh, you need regulation because when you don't have regulation and when you have digital media that are very sort of, of uh, transient. So if you want to uh, make money out of digital commodities, you need to have quite tight regulations around ownership and who owns, because if you can't control your ownership, you can't sell anything. Now that, I mean, that was the lesson that that Napster uh, and file sharing Pirate Bay uh, taught uh, the media industries in the 1990s. So, so I think that that this this uh, hostility between big companies or big tech and the nation state uh, is sort of overblown because they they both need each other. And as you say, they want regulation, but but of course the right type of, of, of regulation. So so we get also different types of differentiation of, of regulation that some of which the uh, are are supported by the big tech that they want to have this regulation and, and some regulation that they don't want to have. And this is why we have all these lobbyists <laughs> uh, circling around in, in Brussels and Strasbourg and, and other places. So because... You- because <laughs> Sorry, because the nation states are still the the only sort of instance that can can install laws uh, and legal regulations. <laughs> Sorry. Hmm. So, Professor Bolin, if I am the government in Stockholm or the European Commission. And I come to you and I say, Professor, what should we do about artificial intelligence? (laughs) What would your answer be? Would it be give me lots of money so I can find out? Or (laughs) do you actually have an idea about what might be a good regulatory framework? No, I don't have a, any fixed uh, solution to 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 this. I, I think, I mean, as you say, 
people within the industry also ask for for regulation here so <clears throat> i would probably go for your first suggestion <laughs> give you a lot of money <laughs> and i'll try to find out uh, but i think i mean uh, obviously it is it is an interesting area but i also think that it is necessary to do have research on 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 these things and and far too often i mean there are quite a few self proclaimed experts in this field so so uh, so it's also difficult i would be worried if i was on the other side if i was on the side of of the politics uh whom should i ask for uh, advice where should i get sort of proper advice in these matters <clears throat> because some advice i mean people in the industry uh, also have quite a great deal of knowledge about these things not least technological knowledge of course but they tend to have shorter time frames when they think i mean researchers academic researchers critical researchers will have longer time frames and and contextualize these things more broadly so so uh i think there's certainly uh, research needed and and you can see that also research foundations are also a privilege in uh, the Swedish Research Council had a, had a sort of special call on the digitization of society a couple of years ago, so they gave out money for that, and that includes also AI, of course. So, uh, so, and I expect that we will see quite quite a few uh, such projects coming out of the European uh, Union EU project in within Horizon Europe and the next framework programs that, that are coming so so but 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 the the thing that we most often lack in the academy is the technological knowledge so it's also good practice i think to have a combi combinations with uh, with uh, sort of critical thinking from uh, media cultural studies uh, sociology etc uh, combined with the engineering knowledge of how how things work i mean because i've been thinking around about how platform capitalism works and it's capitalism is tending to become more and more complex in its nature i mean the 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 different sectors that are involved uh, in in uh, in production uh, in society uh, and you uh, i mean uh, it's too simple i have uh, written a short a few articles about that that comes out of my previous long standing interest in the concept of value uh, uh, where where you can see that it's not so much a a sort of polarization between culture and the economy so to speak uh, if you have these crude bourdieuian models i think we also need to take in other types of value forms uh i mean the, the epistemological values of knowledge that 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 are, are very much connected to technology and uh, etc i mean if you if you read heidegger knowledge and technology are really sort of intertwined with one another the thing that comes with the datafication in, and in data capitalism is it's that the social becomes more and more important the way in which ordinary people are at the root of the production of, of data uh, so 
which is then sort of extracted and uh, processed in the media industries to produce economic value in the end. But but uh, since we, you and me, we well, we are speaking now over a platform. So we are you, we are producing data as we speak, <laughs> and that data will feed into this whole capitalist uh, system. Uh, uh, because these data are packaged and sold uh, to to those who want to buy our data or information about how people behave, etc. And I think that's that's a new feature of data capitalism, uh, which makes it even more complex. But you and I, we don't we don't produce data because we think that we are going to get rich. We do it for other purposes. We cherish other values. I mean, we have a nice conversation now, so and we learn things from one another, and we also get uh, social value of seeing each other because it was some time ago since we did that, so it's nice. So that's a social value, right? Uh, and and which is then taken advantage of by other other sectors of the capitalist society. So so uh, and I, that's a fascinating thing that I think I'm going to return to now in the in the coming years uh, to try to understand better how this capitalist machinery works. And there's a commodification of what might be thought of as private discussion, or might be thought of as you know, to use the word that some of these so-called liberal technologists like to throw around, altruism, mm, mm, where, yeah. you know, I'm wanting other people to get the chance to hear your ideas who may not be in the same sort of field as you, mm. but who might tune into the podcast because I think it would perhaps stimulate their thinking, urge them to become a different kind of citizen, or they might know about some of these things and then, want to engage with you directly or indirectly. Do you know what I mean? And, um, and, and okay. that world, as you indicate, is a world that we place value on, but it's not monetary. And no. it's also not about control. Uh, it's about a kind of democratic intellectualism, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, Prof, we've got about 10 minutes left, and I had two more questions for you. Yeah. And then I wanted to throw it open to you to add something or even subtract something from what we've already discussed. Does that sound all right? Yeah, totally okay. So the first question of the two I'm going to pose is, how do you find things out? What is your method? Now, I know I sound like a biologist or an economist in a promotion meeting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> considering your career, but it seems to me you mix a lot of different methods and, and work with lots of different people. And I wondered if you'd tell us some of your experience of finding things out. Yeah, I think uh, one of the great drivers in, in, in the academy and in research is, is curiosity. So so I, I tend to think, I mean, this thing with Ukraine that we started to talk about, that was really, I mean, it wasn't my focus. I never intended to do research on Ukraine, but I, we happened to stumble over some interesting things that Ukraine did, and then we followed that up, and then the Euromaidan revolution happened. But I've always had so, some sort of um, more ethnographic approach to things, I think. And that also allows you to be a bit flexible in using uh, uh, methods and in finding things out. But, 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 but the 
I mean, ethnographic methods are driven by some sort of curiosity in the end, and then you try to figure out how you are going to figure out things. <laughs> so, are, are, am I going to do interviews, or do I have to need, read uh, a lot of uh, sort of texts, uh, papers, and and most often you mix uh, a lot of methods. You interview experts, but you can also talk to ordinary people, uh, sort of ordinary in the sense that they are not elite people or not have the media as their profession. Uh, although most of us sort of oscillate between being media producers at a small scale when we take photos and post on social media or whatever. But but we don't have I mean it's it's production, but it's not the same production as as other as large scale platform companies are engaged in, for example, or or the telecom business. So, so I, uh, in that sense, I think I'm quite pragmatic in my approach to to problems, which means that I probably could be described as someone who has done a bit of this and that. I've done some sort of <laughs> minor things in quantitative things because I wanted to know on a broader scale how people used mobile phones 20 years ago in the early days of the mobile phone. Uh, but the, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't call myself a quantitative researcher. I have sort of cheated a bit in that area. Uh, so I'm, I don't have very deep knowledge about statistical analysis in that sense. Uh, so probably that could be said of my, the other methods I, I have, have used as well. I don't know, but but it also brings you places where you didn't expect from the start. I mean, I think that's the most uh, deadening uh, things when you produce a project. This is also why it's so boring to write applications because research funders most often want you to say what where will you what knowledge will you produce <laughs> and and if you if you knew that why would you do the research. <laughs> Uh, so, so I think that those those research projects that I've enjoyed most are the ones that where you stumble upon things that you didn't know that you were looking for. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, unfortunately, the rhythms and the norms and the laws of grant applications are far too rigid to acknowledge the, the value of serendipity. And they encourage a formulaic answer that some people are good at writing and some not so good. And that formulaic answer, if well done, can bring lots of funding, even if there is no imagination behind it. And if it does or doesn't produce good knowledge, that's almost irrelevant. All that said, thank you for a great answer. So my second and last question before throwing to you is this one, Prof, and it's really just to tell us what the next things are that you're doing, what's on the docket, what's on the agenda for you in the near future? Yeah, uh, I think, um, uh, I mean, one of the things that I've stumbled upon uh, is that I've become in contact with Latin American researchers. Uh, and uh, this is a, a collaboration that I've enjoyed enormously. It's not easy because... Because when you you are, uh, are trained in different traditions, so I've had since several years cooperations with Brazilian researchers. Uh, 
uh, you are trained differently, so it it's a quite sort of laborious task to get to to speak the same language. Uh, and then I'm not speaking about Portuguese and Swedish and English and the mixture of all of these, but but also the academic language mm. that you sort of end up but that's also very fascinating and stimulating in the end uh, because you learn things also uh, through talking to people that are uh, a bit dissimilar to yourself and have other types of experiences I mean of course cultural and national but also academically uh, other experiences uh, so so um, I'm going to now to in uh, May to a uh, conference in in uh, Sao Paulo to meet these uh, researchers, and we have had exchanges. So there, there has been researchers staying with us for months, lengths, stays or half a year. So uh, that's that's one of the things. And then I think I'm I'm I am interested in the the developments of data capitalism. So that's going to be part of it as well. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. And your long and distinguished history of looking into all sorts of things from young people's media use to the surveillance of social media uh, is remarkable. So, Prof, let me throw it to you now and ask if there are things that you'd like to add that we haven't already discussed or areas that we have touched on but where you want to offer something more. I think actually we have covered all of the things I imagined we would cover <laughs> when we when we set up the time for 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 a meeting. So so uh, yeah, so I enjoyed uh, enormously to talking to you again and seeing you again uh, was nice. Uh, so so I hope to see you in uh, person uh, in the not too distant future. Uh, I love that, Joram. Thank you so much for being with us. <laughs>